Father in heaven, on this day when our nation gives honor to the office of Father, we first thank you that we can approach you, the Holy One, calling you Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no higher comfort. There is no deeper privilege. And Father, I do thank you for the fathers in our midst at Pilgrim Hill. I thank you that you have justified them, and you have sanctified them, and you have filled them with the Spirit of God. And I do pray that you will pour out even more of your Spirit on them, a Spirit of wisdom and in strength today, that we may lead our flocks in the fear and the admonition of the Lord well, that the Word of God would be ready on our tongues, that the delight of God would be bright on our faces. As we take up our role as covenant heads of our homes, may we model well the true covenant head, Jesus Christ, filled with grace and truth, with toughness and tenderness, rightly proportioned. Lord, I pray that our wives would be fruitful vines under our headship, and that our children would flourish like olive shoots around our table. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant generational faithfulness to Pilgrim Hill, that we would not lose a single child, but that every child would be shepherded and fathered towards the kingdom of God through Christ. And Lord, we do pray for our city and our country today. We pray that you would cause the office of Father to be held in honor again in practice throughout our land. We pray for men who have abandoned their role as father, that they might repent and turn their face back first to you and then to their families. We pray that men throughout our nation would again embrace their God-given role as guardians and gardeners, providers and protectors over their homes. We ask, Lord, indeed we plead, that you would be pleased to reestablish a true, biblical, godly understanding of fatherhood in the church and in our nation. We ask that you would fulfill your prophecy to our nation that were the very last words of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children back to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And we know this only happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So save us, Lord. May it be. And now as we approach your word, I pray that we would receive it for what it is, the very words of God Almighty that make us wise unto salvation. Open our ears that we might hear. Quicken our minds that we might understand. Humble our hearts that we might receive. And inflame our affections that we might love you with all of our heart and soul and all of our mind and strength, even more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, first I want to thank you all for your grace over the last two weeks. As most of you probably know, my family and I were in South Africa for the last couple weeks, and, and my heart is brimful of gratitude, both for the blessing of the trip, and also for those who have ministered to us over the last couple of weeks. 
both from without the church and from within. So thank you. Thank you all so much for your grace in that. I'm thankful to be back safe and sound and with you all again to worship together. One of the blessings of being away uh, from things you love is missing them and being reminded that, that you do love them and they didn't have to exist. The grace of God is often more clear in the things you experience every day when, when you're away from them. So I, I feel that. And full disclosure, I think it's technically 11.30 p.m. my time. And so if I nod off, Nathan, you can just come and lay me on the pew and you can just pick up from where we're good in there. Perhaps. Okay. Well, we're back in the book of Philippians after two weeks away, which I'm thankful for. So please go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, and we will be in verses 9 through 11 today. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. If you wanted to find out what somebody loves, there are two surefire ways of finding out pretty quickly. Check their calendar and check their debit card statement. Or to say it another way, whatever we love, we will spend our time on and we will spend our money on. This is the way humans assign value to things. Jesus makes this point succinctly in Matthew 6, 21, when he said simply, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we desire, what we love, is what we will invest ourselves in. If we were the captain of a ship, what we love would be our compass. It would set the trajectory. It would be the thing that we sailed towards. And this is not a result of the fall. This is a design by God. This is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. It is utterly essential to being human. Just like God, our actions follow our affections. This is why we find this in the, the kingly wisdom of Proverbs, Proverbs 4.23. He writes, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Perhaps a good paraphrase of that would be, be careful what you love, because it will define your life. Despite what our world says, the, the chief virtue in life is not love in and of itself. Rather, it is loving what is most worthy what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. And as we re-enter back into the book of Philippians, here we find the Apostle Paul pouring this wisdom into the Philippians. And even more, this entire section is a prayer. Paul's mind and his heart are always connected. And what follows today is not just apostolic instruction to them and to us, but this is a passionate prayer from a pastor's heart. So as we make our way through, let's, let's keep this in mind, because when we get caught up in the text, we, we can forget that. But this is Paul praying over the Philippians, which textures what he says wonderful. Paul wants their love to abound more and more. But he's careful to qualify this statement. 
as we talked about last week. He wants their love to come with knowledge and with all discernment. That is to say, he wants their affections to be shaped and informed by God. And as we continue on today, we're going to see the the why behind Paul's prayer for Christian love to abound. And as we consider carefully what Paul is saying, so as we follow the progression that we'll find, he's going to reveal at least four consequences, four results, four impacts that our love through Christ will have as it abounds more and more. Or as I've titled this sermon, we'll see the excellent effect of abounding love. So, here's the overview of where we're going. This, this is the roadmap. What we're going to see is this. So, as love abounds, first, we grow in wisdom. And as we grow in wisdom, two, we will grow in holiness. And as we grow in holiness, we'll grow, three, in fruitfulness. And then four, and finally, all of this will result in our lives bringing praise and glory to God. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Let's, let's get in and see this unfold for ourselves. So Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, And it is my prayer. So there, there's the prayer. Everything that follows is his prayer. He, he has prayed this to God for the Philippians. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And then verse 10, so that, okay, so he's, he's saying your love abounding is going to result in something now that I'm going to show you. That's, that's the so that there. Okay, so so that what? First, you may approve what is excellent. Every day we have a thousand choices to make. Either this or that. To say these words or, or to say those words. Whether to do this job or to do that job. Whether to build this thing or to build that thing. We can choose. We, we can approve of what is excellent. And the word excellent there literally means the thing that is of highest worth. So all the things you can pick, you pick the one that is the most valuable. When we were in Africa, one of the common things to do, you may have done this before, is to visit the various urban flea markets where people have booths set up and they're, they're selling their wares. And bargaining is just an expected part of the game there, especially if they know that you're an American the first price which they promise is you're the first customer of the day and this is a, an astonishing value they're giving you is incredibly high. They're looking to probably get about half of where, of where they start. So we had to prepare the kids for this because this is not what they're used to. If you go to a store in America and you see a price, that's typically what it is. But this is different. And the sellers know how to work on your heartstrings. And like I said, what is true is, is they're looking to get about half the price. So if, if you start at 400 rand, you'll probably be able to get it for 200. And that's just the, how, the game, how the game goes. One of our children, he was doing the thing, and 
he made a pretty, I thought a pretty good move. Um, he said, I don't have enough. Um, I'm like, okay, that's a good move. And the guy said, well, there's an ATM right there. So he went to the ATM and he got more. I'm like, no, you were, no, that's, he probably paid more in fees than he actually paid. The thing is, well, we still don't know. It takes discernment to make sure what you're getting is worth what you're paying or to approve, to use the language here, what is excellent. And this is the principle that Paul is explaining to the Philippians here. And he's even using the same image. He's painting the same picture for them that I just talked about. It's the idea of a customer buying something they know for sure has been tested and has been tried and has been proven to be made of solid stuff. Like we want to help our kids make good choices at the flea market. Paul wants the Philippians to grow in the maturity of wise discernment in the decisions of life. And this is a theme that we'll see emerging more and more throughout the entire book as we go through. For instance, in Philippians 4.8, we find this, this soaring chain of exhortations that makes the same point, but here in regards to our thought life. Paul says this, finally, brothers, so, so ultimately, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything that is excellent, if there is anything that is worthy of praise, think about those things. This is the essence of wisdom, the ability to, when faced with competing choices, with different opportunities, of different ways to spend ourselves to choose what is most worthy of us, what is worthy of your time and your talent and your treasure, indeed, your very self. And this is a much-needed word for the church in our time because good biblical discernment is at a low ebb. People make decisions so quickly based totally on emotions which are so easily swayed or manipulated or sinful, rather than based on what is true and what is wise and what is Godward and what is worthy. Yet though the folly of our day is more conspicuous because everyone has a virtual megaphone through social media, the truth is wisdom has always been something rare and precious, something that had to be hard fought and sought after with purpose and tenacity and, indeed, humility. This purposeful quest for wisdom, for the ability to approve what is excellent, is the theme of the entire book of Proverbs. So, so the book of Proverbs, in it we find an experienced king pleading with his son to get wisdom. Why? Because the son will have to rule soon. And he wants him to know how to rule well. So consider Proverbs 2, the first seven verses. He says this, My son, if you receive my words, and if you treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight, and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it, like silver, and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, and you will find the knowledge of God. 
for the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. The Lord stores up sound wisdom for the upright. So wisdom comes as we look, not to our own understanding, but to the Lord through the scriptures. Yet, if we go back to the text and we follow the flow, there's still a connection that we need to make. Because remember, Paul says that their growth in wisdom, their ability to approve what is excellent, is a result of their love abounding. He didn't just say, read good books or just read the Bible. He said, as your love abounds, you will be able to approve what is excellent. So is this at odds with what I just said about studying the scriptures as the way to grow in wisdom in a word? No, not at all. And and here's why. Paul is simply and wisely first going after the Philippians' affections before he gives them more directions. Because, going back to our introduction, humans ultimately pursue what they love. So as we grow in love for God, guess what else we grow in love with? The Word of God. The two are inextricably connected. Cherishing God's Word, feeding on God's Word, is a function of our love abounding more and more. And what happens as we absorb more of God's Word? We're able to approve what is excellent. And so there we see the connection between love and practical wisdom. If we love God, we will love his word. We see this often in the psalmist, a man after God's own heart, who loved God. And then Psalm 119 is the longest chapter of the entire scriptures, and the entire thing is how much he loves the word of God. And this is the exact point Jesus makes when asked what the greatest command was. So what's the greatest command? This is from, oh, I forgot to put the reference here, Matthew, rather. (laughs) He said this, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, okay, so, so think about that question. What's the most important commandment? What is the the best thing I can do? Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your hearts and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So, here we see the same connection as we do in the Philippians text. Question, what's the greatest commandment? What's the most important rule to follow? Answer, to love. To love rightly. To first love God and then your neighbor. And then if we put it in the Philippians paradigm... A question, how can we approve what is excellent? How can we do rightly? Answer, let your love for God grow more and more. 
God is ultimately after our rightly ordered affections, not just our rightly followed directions. Not that he's not very serious about obedience, about holiness, because he is. But pleasing obedience is less a function of sheer willpower and is more a function of loyalty and love abounding. Growing up, I used to think Christianity was trying really hard to not do the things I wanted to do. That leads to a strange view of God. But if you've experienced the gospel of Jesus Christ, your pursuit of obedience now is a lived response to Christ. And it is the reason the scriptures speak of conversion as a heart transplant. The heart being the very thing that drives our affections, it needs to be completely renovated. Indeed, not renovated even. It needs to be swapped out. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And this new heart that we receive through our regeneration, through our faith in Jesus Christ, is now alive to God. And it has the ability to love God. It has the ability to grow in deeper love for God, which then has all these downstream applications, which we're seeing here, such as the ability to approve what is excellent. Because it changes the way we assign value to things in life. So practically speaking, what might this look like on the ground where our love impacts what we approve as excellence? Well, it could look like turning down a job that offered you more money, which, worldly speaking, is more worthy, more excellent, because you've discerned that a job which pays less monetarily will actually be more productive in terms of kingdom impact. That is, you were able to approve what was actually excellent because of your love for God, which has informed your value system. Or another way, maybe it looks like a father putting up a hard daily cutoff time at his job, though he could always log more and more hours, so that he can get home at the same reliable time to bless his family with his predictable presence. Even though this makes him less competitive for a promotion, that's okay. Because his love for God has trickled down into his love for his family. And for him, this is approving what is excellent now. So how, how about us? How do your choices reveal what you love most? Or to say it another way, where do you see your love for God flowing downstream in the decisions you make? Okay, continuing on now in the text. We see that as our love abounds, we make wiser choices. And as wisdom abounds over the years, it has a profound impact on the person we're becoming, which we'll see in the remainder of the text. Okay, so back to the text. I'll I'll read from verse 9 again to get the flow of thought, and then I will read all the way through. Paul says this, 
it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with, with knowledge and discernment, so that first you may approve what is excellent, and then what happens when we continually make wise, godly choices? We see three ultimate results, which we'll consider in closing. And this really serves, actually, as a, a good vision for God's will for our lives. First, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Two, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Three, to the glory and praise of God. So we'll touch on these last three briefly. First, God desires that. When you finally see Jesus Christ face to face some years from this evening, that you will be more pure and blameless than you are right now. He wants that. He's going to accomplish that. And that word for pure, it means unalloyed. It's like gold that begins off with impurities, but over time and over testing, through much pressure and heat, it has become pure. God has fine-tuned your life to accomplish that. To be made pure and pure until you see the Lord. So do you need to make tough decisions? Does this drive you to God and to his word? Well, guess what happens when you have to do that a thousand times? It's called sanctification. It's called gro growth in godliness. Hebrews talks about our, our powers of discernment being sharpened and, and hewn and that sanctifying us. For instance, if the decision at work becomes either explicitly voice full support for Pride Month or face getting fired, for the Christian, it's a no-brainer. We would never compromise biblical convictions for job security because first, God owns all the jobs and will always provide, and dishonoring the Lord to keep the cultural status quo today is just simply not something we could do because we have an eternal perspective now. We're looking to the day of Christ and what we're becoming. And if that's your thought process in that scenario, you can be sure that you're becoming more and more blameless for the day of Christ because nobody thinks like that in the world and they will think you are insane for that. So be it. And the Philippians would have faced similar challenges. Remember, Philippi was a prestigious Roman province, and there would have been countless ways to compromise for them. There would have been great political expediency in, if not fully bending the knee to Caesar, synchronizing to the culture in small but corrupting ways. So, so Paul reminds them and us that your life has a telos, your life has a goal to it. It's to become pure and blameless when we stare Jesus Christ in the eyes. And nearing the end now, as our love abounds, what is, what is the next excellent effect? So we approve what is excellent, and then we become pure and more blameless for the day of Christ. And then third, verse 11, if you want to follow along, filled so remember, this is in the context of the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. 
What a glorious vision God has for us. Jesus Christ, through the blood that he shed on the cross, planted seeds into this broken world. And his blood is going to grow a great and glorious harvest. Or to use another biblical term, Christ is like a vine and he is going to bear glorious fruit. The fruit of salvations and the fruit of sanctification and the fruit of the redemption of this world and the fruit of submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ throughout all the nations. And guess how he's going to accomplish this? Through us. That's amazing. John 15, 5. I am the vine. This is Jesus speaking. And you are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can't do anything. And then down in verse 8 there. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. You, Christian, you, Pilgrim Hill, we are real, actual, chosen conduits of Christ's redemptive work in the world. This, this is what Paul is wanting to, the Philippians to think like. Christ wants you to be filled with fruits because he desires fruits. We participate with him in the work he's doing. This is an excellent thing. Christian, God wants you to breathe your last breath on this earth, having scattered countless seeds of a faithful witness to Christ. Seeds in your home and seeds in your church and seeds at your work. And then he wants at the resurrection for you to come wide-eyed seeing your plot in the great harvest where God blessed your efforts and to see all the fruit that he grew through it. And Christ wants to greet you as you come to him with your hands full of the fruit of righteousness that he worked through you. That's the picture. That's what Paul says. You're pure and blameless at the day of Christ, and you're filled with fruit of righteousness. And the truth is, friends, one of the most countercultural things we can do as Christians is to think in terms of long term fruitfulness. Fruitfulness that will last beyond just our first life on this earth. And why do I say this is countercultural? Because we live in narcissistic, short sighted times that actually often finds fruitlessness to be a virtue now. Whether it's, it's the attack on God's design for the family, which is how God grows fruit, whether it's stigmatizing large families, whether it's through consumerism that leads to crippling debt. We see it through rampant discontentment, always thinking the good life is somewhere else so the soil you live in never gets invested in. And it's all the enemy's ploy to render this earth fruitless. But as Christians, we see right through this. 
And we celebrate the Godward vision given to us today in Philippians to be a people who know that approving what is excellent means making decisions that look beyond the immediate, investing yourselves in ways that will have, by God's grace, a generational impact for the kingdom of God. So Pilgrim Hill, let's get excited about the vision God has for us in Goodlettsville and around, today and in the coming years. Let's worship faithfully and let's build a sturdy church. Let's have lots of children and then invest in them well. Let's become teachers at Christian schools. Let's build businesses founded on biblical convictions so we aren't dependent on Babylon's wares. Let's spread the gospel when we work at jobs that are not Christian. Let's write more stories that echo the story Let's hoard less and let's give more. Let's practice hospitality and laugh and feast to the goodness of God. And let's invite our unbelieving neighbors to get in on the action. Let's throw out as much gospel seed as we can through wise, faithful living, through telling people that they can be made right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ by faith alone. And let's see how God will do far more than we could have ever imagined with it. It sounds daunting, right? Well, that's why we have to remember this is all through Jesus Christ. Christ is working in us. We take hold of that by faith, and God blesses simple faith. And as we do these things, the final effect in the passage will be this. It's all to the glory and praise of God. So let's do it. Let's, let's do it. Not that we make God more glorious, but as we live our lives propelled by the love of God, knowing he has first loved us in Christ, as our lives are a lived response to the gospel, we as his redeemed image bearers are showing the world more and more what he's like. And through this, Goodlessville becomes more and more a groundswell of God's glory that will grow until the day of Christ. So may it be. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for the, the beautiful vision that you cast for us today through the gospel of Christ. That through his life and through his death and through his resurrection and through his ascension, he has, he has saved us but he has saved us into something now, into cultivating the kingdom, into bearing righteous fruit. And so, Father, we, we struggle to believe this is true. We struggle to believe that our short lives here could have an eternally impactful uh, impact. Father, I pray that you would fill us with, with faith, that we would be a, be a people who think often the, the, the same spirit that, that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in me. Of course, I can, I can reap righteous fruit for God. And show us practically, Lord, what, what does this mean? It's going to look different for all of us. What, what, what does faithfulness look like? What does fruitfulness look like for us? So give us wisdom, Lord. May we be a people more and more who love you and who are approving what is excellent and trusting the redemptive process. When the disciples asked the Lord Jesus how they were to pray, 
He responded to them saying, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.